Welcome to the Red Light Report, your number one source for all things red light therapy, where you will learn how to optimize your health, wellness, and longevity with the power of photobiomodulation. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Belkowski. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Red Light Report. Of course, this is your host, Dr. Mike Belkowski. And if you are looking forward to some photobiomodulation research, as I typically do on solo sodes, you may be slightly disappointed because we're going to take a, a slightly different path this week in particular. I've been reading a book that I'm rereading. It's been several years since I've read it, but it caught my eye the past week or so. So I picked it up and started to reread it. And as I've said in previous episodes, what I like to do with my books is whenever I find something that's interesting or something that's going to catch my eye when I reopen the book, I will highlight it or underline it or, or bracket it on the sides if, if it's a really impactful or important idea. So uh, certainly whatever I highlighted and lined years ago was certainly on point for what's catching my eye the second read around. And especially in the first chapter or so, there's just some really great concepts and ideas that resonate with especially me and of course you the audience if you're in alternative health and wellness you're interested in red light therapy you're proactive in taking health into your own hands and so I'll just tell you the title of the book now and then we'll go over a couple of announcements but the title of the book is bioregulatory medicine an innovative holistic approach to self-healing and there are five authors on here almost all of them are NDs or some sort of holistic credential, if you will. The copyright is 2018, so it's not like it's hot, hot off the press, but it's not necessarily old news either. Not that I have an issue with either, but 2018, five years ago or so. And so we'll get to that book in a moment. And I do want to brief you guys on on a couple of things. Next week's solo sode is going to be some hot, spicy, information. I'm just going to tell you guys now, you're going to want to tune in to next week's episode. And I hope it's the type of information that will get massively circulated around the biohacking, but more specifically, the red light therapy sphere. So if you listen to it, and it catches your attention, which I'm sure it will, I hope that you share it with people that don't typically listen to the podcast, not to have them start listening to my podcast, but more so to hear the important information I'm going to release next week. And again, it pertains to the entire red light therapy market as a whole. Part of it has to do with BioLite and what BioLite is doing. But again, more of the information is about the market as a whole. It has to do with an area, I don't want to call it an area of concern, but certainly an area that has needed someone to step up and step in to raise the bar to a new standard because this area of the market, which again, you'll learn about next week. And as the consumer, or even as some of these companies, they might not be aware of this issue. So again, the crux of the topic next week is not to bring anyone down. In fact, it's to bring this topic to the awareness of people like you and me and other potential consumers or people that don't even know about red light therapy yet but they'll be entering the market in the near future or somewhere down the road, everyone needs to be assured that they are given the proper information when they are looking from company to company and they're comparing different objective measures or specs on various products. 
you know, that'll give you a little hint into what next week is going to be about. But rest assured, it's going to potentially knock your socks off. So if you get cold feet easily, you might want to put on a couple of pairs of socks. Because I'll tell you right now, the information that I'm about to release next week, when I got the information or when I did my research and due diligence, both myself and BioLite, my socks were severely knocked off, clear across the room, if you will. (laughs) So I know this is going to be impactful information. It's going to be groundbreaking. And for a lot of people, I'm not sure what the reaction is going to be because it is going to have a massive ripple effect on the red light therapy market. That's my expectation. That's my hope. And again, it's not to put me on a high horse or put me on a pedestal or even put BioLite on a pedestal. Again, it's more so about raising the bar for red light therapy and the market as a whole. And even this biohacking, anti-aging longevity market, because I think it's not just red light therapy dealing with this type of an issue. It's more widespread than we would like to believe. But anyway, I'll leave that teaser there. Just know next week's solo sode is going to be one that you're not going to want to miss. There's going to be a lot of news or information bombs dropped. And again, I hope it's a podcast episode that gets highly circulated given the information that will be presented. So anyway, so there's that I wanted to inform you guys about. And then like I told you in previous solo episodes, BioLite itself is getting ready to release a couple of new products. We're knocking on the door of the first one that will be starting pre-orders this month in May. And then shortly thereafter, probably in early June, that's my goal, will be dropping a second pre-order. So we're going to have two new products we're going to release. And as we get closer to those or just before, I'll give you guys the nitty gritty details information on that. Provide you guys with, of course, a red light report specific discount code because I want to provide and, and give you guys, the listeners, some value for supporting me and this podcast for so long. So stay tuned for those. That's about it for now. Let's get started and let's jump into this book. Again, it's called Bioregulatory Medicine. And I'll, I'll leave a link in the show notes for this book if you guys want to check it out or just look at it. Or even if it interests you, this piques your interest, you can go ahead and purchase it on Amazon wherever you can find it. But again, we're not going to be covering this book in its entirety or anything like that. I kind of just wanted to take a week away, a solo sode away from being in the trees of the trenches of photobiomodulation research. And that's, you know, very detailed oriented. And that's great because that's what this podcast is all about, red light therapy. But for this week, I want to step back and look at the forest, the forest being alternative health well-being or what is health and how how does alternative health or naturopathic health even compare to allopathic medicine or allopathic minded or centered health and because i think once we can have a better understanding of those nuances and even the history behind it all then we can even better understand why we choose the health modalities or the physicians or doctors or quote-unquote alternative medicine doctors that we do. There's a time for each. There's a time for both. But I think understanding, again, the nuances and the history behind both will better guide our decisions and will even further enlighten us, yes, pun intended, enlighten us as to why red light therapy is so special and unique and has really come to the forefront for a lot of people trying to be proactive with their own health 
the last handful of years, and I think will continue to grow over the coming years because of its versatility, its safety, its efficacy. And again, it's another powerful tool to put your health back into your own hands and not be reliant on someone else or another system to take care of your own health. And in that sense, it's very liberating and empowering. Without further ado, let's get started in this first chapter here entitled Modern Disease and the Rise of the Allopathic Model. And there's a couple of quotes here that some books do before they jump into the chapter. And the first quote is from Sir Isaac Newton, which says, Every body continues in its state of rest or of uniform motion in a right line unless it is compelled to change that state by forces impressed upon it. And then another quote by Voltaire, which says, The art of medicine consists of amusing the patient while nature cures the disease. And so jumping into the chapter here, chronic and degenerative illnesses are largely new to mankind. In fact, diseases such as cancer, diabetes, fibromyalgia, and multiple sclerosis have been termed modern or man-made diseases because they were relatively rare until 300 years ago or so. The term chronic illness versus acute illness, such as the bubonic plague or a broken arm, comes from the Greek god of time, Kronos, and can be defined as an illness that persists for a long time, usually more than three months, and is often slow in its progression. The environment for these illnesses can be set early. Many chronic diseases have traceable roots in childhood. Cancer, for example, can take decades of development before becoming a diagnosable mass. Chronic illnesses, such as Alzheimer's disease, start with a degenerative process, a gradual deterioration of specific tissues, cells, or organs. This causes loss of function or structure for the mind in Alzheimer's, the bones in osteoporosis. Little by little, things get worse. In disease, cells degenerate, meaning they no longer generate sufficient energy for proper functioning and health. Put simply, the body runs out of battery power or out of gas. The switch might be flipped on, but there's no light to be seen. In the body, the cellular batteries that provide operating power are molecules called adenosine triphosphate, or ATP, sometimes referred to as the energy currency of life. ATP is created in the mitochondria, which are tiny yet oh-so-powerful energy-producing factories within the nucleus of each cell. Here's what is important about mitochondria. Cutting-edge medical research has found that chronic and degenerative diseases share one thing in common, dysregulated energy production. In other words, the mitochondria have stopped functioning as they should, like an engine without an alternator. In fact, the numerous conditions that involve mitochondrial dysfunction include diabetes, Huntington's disease, cancer, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, aging, anxiety disorders, cardiovascular disease, and chronic fatigue syndrome. Energy, or the lack thereof, is the difference between health and disease, life and death. This fact is why the central focus of biomed is on the use of biologically energetic diagnostics and therapeutics. 
The modern diseases we face are multifactorial, meaning they are caused by many contributing factors with dysregulation and degeneration at their roots. Dysregulation is caused when our bioregulating systems are pushed away or blocked from the normal state of balance, or homeostasis. Common symptoms of bioregulatory dysregulation can include allergies, inflammation, pain, headaches, exhaustion, depression, tension, sleeplessness, indigestion, and recurrent infections. These classic symptoms are often a response to an overload of prescription drugs, toxic chemicals, pollution, poor quality or allergenic foods, psycho-emotional stress, lack of exercise, nutrient deficiencies, and dental infections, all of which can damage the mitochondria when they persist over time. All right, guys, as I promised, I am going to be offering you guys an exclusive 15% discount for the pre-sale order of The Matrix. Uh, like I spoke about earlier, this is a groundbreaking, innovative, patent-pending piece of technology from BioLite. It is literally a full-body red light therapy mat. You heard that right, a mat. It's a quarter of an inch thick. You can roll it up like a yoga mat. It has over 2,100 LEDs, and like all BioLite, light products, you have the option of choosing red and near-infrared light combo, red light only, or near-infrared light only. The dimensions are 69 inches by 34 inches, so you can either lay on it full body, cover it on top of your body like a blanket, roll up a section of your body, let's say your abdomen or one of your legs or one of your arms or a third or half of your body at once, roll yourself up like a bean burrito and literally give yourself a 360 degree red light therapy treatment. And more or less, you can think of this mat, the matrix, as the next phase of red light therapy. Because right now, everyone has panels and there's a time and place for that, but I think now is the time for innovation and moving the needle forward on red light therapy technology. This red light therapy mat, the matrix, roll it up, you can sit on it, you can stand on it, you can lay on it, you can roll yourself up. It's extremely versatile. It's easy to take on the go, so you're not just bound to hanging it up on a door or a wall. It's very easy to take on the go, put it in the corner of your room so it takes up minimal room in your house. The options are endless. Really, you guys, my loyal podcast audience, I'm going to offer you guys a 15% discount. And the discount code is simply podcast. So go to biolite.shop, check out the matrix. If you want this exclusive 15% discount, simply use coupon code podcast at checkout to receive that discount. And I know you guys are going to absolutely love this game changing product, the matrix. Pharmaceutical medications are now also known as major contributor to mitochondrial damage, which explains all the adverse, also known as side, effects. In fact, all classes of psychotropic drugs, as well as statin medications and analgesics such as acetaminophen, have been documented to damage mitochondria. Considering that many people with chronic illness have been on these drugs for years and sometimes for decades, we're talking about a high level of mitochondrial damage. The allopathic medical model's staunch dogmatic entrenchment in the one-size-fits-all drugs-for-everyone paradigm isn't getting to the energetic roots of modern diseases. This model implies that if you take a Tylenol for a headache and the pain goes away, you can assume the headache was due to a ty Tylenol deficiency. Yet estimates show that 85% of chronic and degenerative diseases are rooted in adaptable elements such as diet, lifestyle, mitochondrial function, and emotional well-being. And this model is exactly why we are losing the war on cancer, 
why multiple sclerosis patients slowly but surely lose significant function, and why chronic fatigue syndrome has become the biggest blanket diagnosis of our time. Headache? Take a Tylenol. Backache? Have some oxycodone. Prevention is not the focus and palliation is not a cure, because when you stop taking the drug, the symptoms return. The immediate gratification, take two aspirin and call me in the morning allopathic approach doesn't cure chronic or degenerative illnesses. We deserve better medicine than this. Yet, without even realizing it, we've become entrenched in allopathy. Since the widespread adoption of the current healthcare model in the 1960s, which is when HMO and private insurance were introduced during the time of President Nixon, medical costs have escalated as much as 15-fold, while rates of chronic disease are projected to increase more than 50% by 2023. We've spent significant amounts of money, but not much progress has been made. The U.S. healthcare system is ranked the worst among the 11 developed nations. Meanwhile, Canada, Denmark, Sweden, Switzerland, and Germany top the charts. What are they doing differently? Many things, of course, but the commonality between the other countries is the use of bioregulatory medicine practices. In the United States, it's time for a more comprehensive and sophisticated medical model, one especially adapted to the current complexities of chronic illnesses. The just wait until it's broken with little regard to prevention or sharpening health is a sick care model that no longer satisfies most U.S. citizens. But do we even know what true health is anymore? And so I'm going to go ahead and skip a couple of sections here in the book, one that goes into health and how the allopathic model is more concerned about giving you a diagnosis so they can slap you with some pharmaceuticals because the vast majority, the vast, vast majority of doctors get a kickback when they prescribe you drugs. Let's see here. In the United States, and this is from the book, in the United States, about 75% of medical doctors received at least one payment from a drug or equipment company in 2014, according to a ProPublica analysis. That same year, Americans were handed 4.3 billion prescriptions. Palliation is a prescription for profit. So I think a lot of us are aware of that. The allopathic model is great for treating acute conditions, but not chronic. And actually, the allopathic model tends to create a lot of chronic conditions secondary to the side effects of all the pharmaceuticals that people are prescribed. And so that's what those two sections go into is kind of the whole polypharmacy pandemic. But I want to jump into the next section that's entitled Origins of Medical Theories, Philosophies, and Sex. And that is S-E-C-T-S, like sectors. The world's oldest medical systems are India's Ayurveda and China's traditional Chinese medicine, or TCM, both dating back almost 6,000 years. The focus of both these models, and from where Biomed pulls its oldest roots, is on the patient rather than the disease. Promoting health and enhancing the quality of life in each of these medical systems has been accomplished through the use of therapeutic strategies applied in a holistic fashion. Holistic medicine views the body as a complete internal and external system that reacts to its environment. These ancient healing models focus also on the mind, spirit, and emotions. Holistic medicine is far from a new concept. It's the oldest medicine model there is. Both Ayurveda and TCM also view health and disease in relation to energy. Prana, referred to in Ayurveda, means life energy, and 
chi from TCM means the body's vital force. Energy has been an integral part of health since the beginning of medicine. Today, we call it mitochondria or biofields. Throughout this book, you will learn that energy is the not-so-secret key to health. In fact, the energy is medicine torch was lit in anti-diluvian China and India, then migrated west to Greece, where its recognition continued to burn. Around 6,000 years ago, medicine emerged from the caves of the occult and crept into the temples of philosophy. Hippocrates of Kos, considered the father of modern medicine, proposed that medicine was largely influenced by the human connection to nature and pneuma, which is spelled P-N-U-M-A. Pneuma, the Greek term for energy or natural force. Hippocrates developed a medical theory, one that pervaded societies for thousands of years, that nature's four elements, water, earth, wind, and fire, had an analogous relationship to the body. These elements were reflected in the body by four fluids called humors, black bile, yellow bile, phlegm, and blood. Pneuma is infused into each of these four humors, powering their respective functions and actions. Symptoms and disease thus arose when there was an excess, or a lack, of one of these humors. Hippocrates defined the duty of the physician as to reinstate a balance of these humors by facilitating the healing virtues of nature and our body's innate ability to heal. The first to attest to the law of similars, Hippocrates asserted that using treatments that encourage the same symptoms would encourage healing. He said, By similar things the disease is produced and through the application of the like is cured. Conditions, such as fevers, in other words, should be treated with heat. The common cold can be treated with various applications of cold water. Hippocrates demonstrated that disease, in fact, is a natural process and that symptoms are natural reactions of the body to a disease process. He recognized the mind-body connection and advocated therapies including a healthy diet, a balanced lifestyle, and botanical medicines. His famous quote, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food, is still widely used in nutritional medicine today and was a part of the original Hippocratic Oath. But of course, questioning is the hallmark of philosophy, and eventually, the law of similars was challenged. Claudius Galen, a Greek physician, surgeon, and philosopher in the Roman Empire, also largely steered the course of medicine, but in a different philosophic direction. Like Hippocrates, he believed in the healing power of nature, but in stark contrast, Galen introduced the idea of treatment by opposites, known as the law of contraries. If a patient appeared with a fever, they were treated with something cold. This doctrine provided the foundation of allopathic medicine. From the Greek word allos, or other, allopathic medicine is the method of treating a disease with a remedy that produces effects differing from those produced by the disease itself. With Galen, we saw the first division of medical philosophy, one school of thought working in accordance with biology, the other working in opposition. Just like in American politics, proponents of each of these sides have been debating each other for thousands of years, and just as medical philosophy has undergone profound question and evolution, so has medicine itself. So we're going to continue along this, this historical ride with the next section entitled The Apothecary, the Pharmacy, 
and homeopathy. Pharmacology is the branch of medicine that studies the uses, effects, and actions of drugs. It is a term derived from the Greek word of pharmakon, meaning poison in classic Greek and drug in modern Greek. The essence of pharmacology is to examine the interaction between a living organism and a specific compound and observe any normal or abnormal biochemical or metabolic activities. From cauldron to coke bottle, this field of study is as old as mankind. The earliest known documentation of pharmacological substances is the Sashruta Samhita, an Indian Ayurvedic treatise from the 6th century BC that describes hundreds of medical or medicinal herbs, including their safety, efficacy, dosage, and benefits. From the ancient Egypt, the Ebers Papyrus, dating back to the 3rd century BC, lists the extensive plant and animal-derived pharmacopoeia used by that civilization, including myrrh, juniper berries, poppy, lead, salt, lizard's blood, embalming essential oils, and various excreta. Medicine, since the beginning of time, has been derived from biological, natural substances that were studied for their pharmacological action. Around AD 60, Petaneus Dioscorides, a first-century Greek physician, botanist, and pharmacologist, wrote De Materia Medica, which became the foremost source of modern botanical terminology and the leading pharmacological text for the next 16 centuries. Crowned the father of pharmacology, Dioscorides was first a military physician whose hobby was to study medicinal plants wherever he traveled. His five-volume encyclopedia described how to prepare medicine from various plant parts and when each part should be harvested for maximum efficacy. Plants included pine bark, pepper, opium, belladonna, poppy, buttercup, jimsonweed, henbane, and deadly nightshade. For all of human history, until the last few hundred years, plants, animals, and minerals were the foundation for all drug-like substances, working both with and against biology depending on the medical sect with which the physician was aligned. During the Middle Ages in Europe, knowledge and interest in medicinal plants grew. Botanical gardens began to sprout, and pharmacy-like shops that formulated and dispensed Materia Medica, which were called apothecaries, also cropped up. Interest in medicine was increasing as disease was becoming more virulent. The Black Death, one of the most devastating pandemics in human history, killed almost 60% of Europe's population between 1346 and 1353. By that time, medicine had settled quite comfortably into the theories of the four humors and the law of contraries. So, when Paracelsus came onto the scene in the 15th century, he gave Hippocratic medicine a much-needed revival and provocative stir. A Swiss physician, alchemist, and astrologer of the German Renaissance, Paracelsus called for a return to the Hippocratic view of like cures like. So adamant was Paracelsus that he burned the books of Galen, causing rampant feather flapping in a weather nested in an allopathic focus. Paracelsus further aimed to resurrect the nature-cure focus of early Greeks. He argued that while the body was a chemical system that had to be balanced internally, it also needed to be in harmony with its environment. Paracelsus not only proposed a chemistry and energetic approach to cure, 
but he also introduced a new class of materia medica, including metallic and mineral substances. He was noted for saying, Poison isn't everything, and no thing is without poison. The dosage makes it either a poison or a remedy. Using this dosage mindset, he first introduced the concept of using potentially toxic remedies to elicit a cure. Mercury, lead, arsenic, and antimony, poisons to most, were cures in his view. His use of these substances to cure diseases of the times crowned him as the father of toxicology. On Historical Heels of Paracelsus, Samuel Hahnemann, a German physician born in 1755, furthered the like-cures-like legacy spawned by Hippocrates. Hahnemann believed in the detailed testing of drugs on healthy human bodies to obtain valid knowledge of a drug's effects. He went as far as to self-experiment with the anti-malarial drug quinine derived from the bark of the cinchona tree. He derived that the drug had a similar effect to the illness it was supposed to cure. In a healthy person, a dose of quinine caused a fever. Hahnemann developed the central idea of homeopathic medicine. Homeopathic medicine is based on the age-old principle that the body is able to heal itself and that like cures like. The first homeopathic hospital opened in 1832 in Leipzig, Germany, followed by several others throughout Europe. While serving on the faculty at Leipzig University, Hahnemann became disillusioned with the emerging standard medical practices of the time, including overdrugging and bloodletting. He pursued instead the natural laws of medicine, opposing allopathy, and further developed the law of similars. During the mid-1800s, the foundations of Hippocratic and bioregulatory medicine were confirmed and practiced. That is, until medicine shoved science under a microscope, disease became microbial, and the lights in Hippocratic medical schools were turned off. And then the subsequent section here is entitled, It Must Be Proven to Be True, The Rise of Empiricism. Empiricism, or the theory that knowledge only comes from what we can confirm with our senses, appealed to the plague-stricken populations of the 15th through 18th centuries. It became a fundamental part of the prevailing scientific method dictating that all hypotheses and theories must be tested against observations of the natural world rather than on reasoning, intuition, revelation, or anecdotal evidence. Empiricism states that methods must be proven to be true regardless of the anecdotal evidence used for thousands of years. So, for example, where physicians had always confirmed the importance of the spiritual aspect of medicine, philosophers such as René Descartes heralded in the concept of the mind-body dualism instead, that the mind and body are two distinct entities. Medicine, therefore, according to Descartes, should focus only on the physical body because, unlike the mind, the body is observable and objectified. The mind and spirit should be ignored because they cannot be quantified. Descartes, aptly dubbed the father of modern Western philosophy, believed that an idea with any doubt should be rejected entirely and accepted only if it acquired a firm foundation of knowledge and validity. English philosopher Francis Bacon, an ally in this view, declared that the aim of science was to obtain knowledge so that we could dominate and control nature, quote-unquote, she must be bound. However, 
Over the years since the 17th century, we've learned that disease needs to be considered from the internal bioregulatory system's perspective, as well as with an energetic and emotional angle. Fortunately, the role of the mind in medicine has slowly regained its place. The fields of psychoneuroimmunology and neuroimmunomodulation trace the pathways between emotions and disease whose connections have long been viewed in clinical contexts by physicians ranging from Galen to Freud. Neuroscientist Candace Pert, in her groundbreaking book Molecules of Emotion, published in 1999, found that certain proteins called peptides, including endorphins, are among the body's key information substances that affect our mind, our emotions, our immune system, our digestion, and other bodily functions. Her research disproved Descartes, who insisted that the mind and the body be split, the body belonging to science and the mind to metaphysics. But let's go back for just a moment. In the 17th century, when scientist Isaac Newton cast a mathematical, materialistic, and reductionist view upon the world, the body was seen as a machine, as was everything else during that time of the Industrial Revolution, a machine that was best understood if taken apart with the very smallest pieces analyzed. Descartes had already removed the mind from medicine, and with Newton's reductionist theory, medicine shifted to the perspective that organs and tissues should be viewed in isolation, ignoring the whole. Medicine moved from the macro to the micro, and therefore the quest to understand the body and disease became more myopic. It was perfect timing for microbiology to enter the space. In the late 1800s, what was perhaps the best-known medical feud raged between two French scientists, Louis Pasteur, who discovered the science of microbiology and suggested the theory that microorganisms were the basis of disease, and his rival, scientist Antoine Beauchamp, who disagreed with a simplistic germ theory suggesting that the quote-unquote biological terrain, i.e. the body's internal environment, was more important than microbes. The germ gene cause of disease became the foundation of allopathy, while imbalances in the terrain as the root cause of disease established the base camp of biomed and many other natural medicine modalities. But pasture theories won the popular vote despite the fact that Beauchamp's under-received claim was reinforced with the seed and soil hypothesis asserted in 1889 by Stephen Paget. Paget found that some cancerous tumor cells what he referred to as the seed, grew preferentially in the microenvironment of select organs, which he called the soil. Paget theorized that metastases resulted only when the appropriate seeds were implanted in suitable soils and the microenvironment, i.e. the terrain, supported their growth. Simply, two people could be exposed to the same germs and have the same cancer cells in their body but only one might get sick because of the state of their terrain. Interestingly, when Pasteur was on his deathbed, he is anecdotally reportedly to have said that Bernard was right. And in French he said, The microbe is nothing. The soil is everything. Regardless of this, the seed and soil theory was cast to the wind as 19th century medicine was infected with the germ theory. With the dawn of bacteriology, the development of immunizations, pasteurization, and antibiotics, which means anti-life, 
accelerated at a dizzying pace from the late 1800s through the 1930s. And why not? It made sense to a world that was reeling from the flu pandemic of 1889 that killed a million people while malaria continued to scourge the globe. It was time for answers, and fast. It was also a time during which money and medicine fell deeply in love. And when that happened, all alternative schools of thought were closed, cast aside, discredited, and banished in favor of the conventional allopathic drug-based model. There was actually one document that discredited all other medicine sects, aside from allopathy called the Flexner Report, written by educator Abraham Flexner and published in 1910 under the sponsorship of Carnegie and Rockefeller Foundations. The report called on American medical schools to enact higher admission and graduation standards and to adhere strictly to the protocols of quote-unquote mainstream science in their teaching and research. The mainstream at the time was firmly planted in the world of microbiology. Holistic was not part of their vocabulary. To Flexner, illegitimate quote-unquote non-scientific approaches in the medical marketplace, including the offerings of so-called folk psychologists, naturopaths, homeopaths, chiropractors, and osteopaths, were actively competing with the modern conventional scientific paradigm of research and education. To him, their models were wrong and therefore dangerous. Flexner's report subsequently led to shutting down the majority of complementary and alternative-oriented colleges and programs, such as medical schools, homeopathic colleges, and some psychiatric institutions, before and after World War I. The remaining approved medical research and education programs were funded by philanthropic organizations such as the Rockefeller Foundation and the Carnegie Foundation, foundations that also had a lot of money in the pockets of drug developers. These foundations and the Flexner Report fueled a medical coup against Hippocratic and holistic medicine, labeling them as quackery. Bulldozed by heavily funded bullies, natural medicine practitioners were shoved out of favor, making way for the new era of medicine, synthetic prescription pharmaceutical drugs. Today's pharmaceutical companies were once apothecaries that transitioned into wholesale drug production in the middle of the 19th century. Merck, for example, began as a small apothecary shop in Darmstadt, Germany in 1668, only beginning wholesale production of drugs in the 1840s. Then, dye and chemical companies established research labs and discovered medical applications for their products in the 1880s. Chemicals firms that morphed into pharmaceutical companies include Bayer and Pfizer. Those companies also established cooperative relationships with academic labs. The American Chemical Society's Division of Medicinal Chemistry was founded in 1909 and called the Division of Pharmaceutical Chemistry. Chemicals became synonymous with medicine, and the bonds were sealed among a treacherous trilogy, chemical, pharmaceutical, and educational. But amid the chemical drug development and research hysteria, there was another scientist playing around with some ideas. Ideas that would take the all-but-forgotten energy focus of ancient and Hippocratic medical models to a whole new frequency, keeping the heart of biomed beating among the drums of industrialized medicine. Which leads us into the next section, which is entitled Einstein, Energy, and Quantum Theory. So this is a really 
interesting, exciting, revelatory section here. I have a lot of stuff underlined and highlighted, so, so buckle up. <laughs> German-born theoretical physicist Albert Einstein changed the faces of both science and medicine forever in the early 1900s. In contrast with a body-is-mechanical Newtonian perspective, Einstein asserted that human beings are 100% energy. He said, Everything is energy, and that's all there is. Match the frequency of the reality you want, and you cannot help but get that reality. It can be no other way. This is not philosophy. This is physics. Einstein was a pioneer in quantum theory, explaining the nature and behavior of matter and energy on an atomic and subatomic level. The cutting-edge field of energy medicine, which deeply influences bioregulatory medicine, is based on the fundamental premise that all physical objects and psychological processes, such as thoughts, emotions, beliefs, and attitudes, are expressions of energy and are not simply mechanistic. The quantum and energy theories of Einstein bestowed a modern explanation to the ancients' views of energy, things like chi and veda. And as we will explore deeper throughout this book, energy is everything and is the key to health and healing. Natural biologically derived medicine contains energy, and energy is what is required to change the terrain. Even in allopathic medicine, there are many well-established uses of measurable energy fields in both the diagnosis and treatment of disease. Some of these things include magnetic resonance imaging, or MRIs, laser energy correction surgery, cardiac pacemakers, radiation therapy, and UV light therapies for psoriasis and seasonal affective disorder. Yet, the allopathic modality continues to focus solely on the biochemistry of cells, tissues, and organs, while energy medicine focuses on the body's energy fields that organize and control the growth and repair of cells, tissues, and organs. Repairing impaired energy patterns, bioregulatory systems, and mitochondria is the most efficient, least invasive way to improve the vitality of organs, cells, and psyche. And I'm going to repeat that one more time because I have it underlined. I have a lot of stuff underlined, but I think this is a really important idea or concept. Repairing impaired energy patterns, bioregulatory systems, and mitochondria is the most efficient, least invasive way to improve the vitality of organs, cells, and psyche. This can only be done by changing energy through the use of energetic medicine found in naturally occurring elements. Thanks to Einstein, we know that our bodies, or our physical world, as well as our thoughts and beliefs, are all part of a resonant field of vibrating, oscillating energy. And our energy is affected by our lifestyles, our environment, and our emotions. The ancient medical views that sustained human health for thousands of years were at last confirmed by Einstein's quantitative energy theories. Energy medicine furthered its just accolades when Niels Ryberg Feinzen, who was born 1860 to 1904, a Danish physician and scientist, was awarded the Nobel Prize in Medicine and uh, Physiology in 1903 for his contribution to the treatment of diseases, especially lupus vulgaris, with concentrated light radiation. Radiation is the emission or transmission of energy in the form of waves or particles through space or a material medium. 
visible light is a form of electromagnetic radiation as are radio waves, infrared radiation, ultraviolet radiation, x-rays, and microwaves. Cancer radiation therapy, for example, uses a special kind of high-energy beam to damage cancer cells, which is actually a form of energy medicine using light, or photons, based on the Greek word for light. Each photon contains energy. German biophysicist Fritz Albert Popp, born in 1938, proved that light in our body is actually stored by and emitted from our DNA. We knew that plants used energy from sunlight to make food, but it became clear that plants are not the only living beings that have a complex relationship with and need for light. The biophotons emitted from human DNA, in fact, regulate the activity of metabolic enzymes. We know today that man is basically a beam of light. When a cell dies, the process looks very similar under a microscope to the death of a star. As genius Nikola Tesla, electrical engineer, physicist, and futurist said, if you want to find the secrets of the universe, think in terms of energy, frequency, and vibration. Bioregulatory medicine sees human as a triangle of health that is biophysiological, energetic, and emotional. Referred to in other paradigms as meridian points, chakras, veda, or chi, energy has been officially validated by modern science. Energy medicine, until recently, has been largely disregarded by mainstream, yet it is the most innovative, safe, and effective form of medicine. Today, through proven research, modern medicine has bestowed a name to these energetic influences. Biofields. The term biofield was coined in the early 1990s by the National Institutes of Health as a massless field, not necessarily electromagnetic, that surrounds and permeates living bodies and affects the body. A biofield, also called a biological field, is a human's complex organizing energy field that is involved in the generation, maintenance, and regulation of biophysiological homodynamics. All living systems are controlled by our biofields, which have been scientifically proven to influence a variety of biophysiological pathways, including biochemical, cellular, and neurological processes. These biofields include energy and information that actually surround and interpenetrate the human body, holding and conveying intelligence that is vital for bioregulation. Biofield science is an emerging field of study aiming to provide a scientific foundation for understanding the complex homodynamic regulation of living systems. But this is something we humans have known about for a long time. It was called vital force about 3,000 years ago. Of course, from an allopathic perspective, under the assumption that life is chemistry, energy medicine, or the application of extremely low-level signals to the body via bioelectromagnetic device-based therapies is incomprehensible. It's time to change that view. Energy medicine focuses on refueling and repairing mitochondria, giving needed fuel to cells to help facilitate bioregulation. These non-toxic treatments, including electron foot baths, oxygen therapies, electromagnetic vibration, and bioresonance therapy, are all tools used by bioregulatory medical providers. And so that wraps up the sections I wanted to cover in the first chapter. There's still a little bit more left in that chapter, 
but stuff that I don't necessarily need to share on the podcast because there's a couple of other topics I want to cover before we wrap up here. And so we'll move on to chapter two here, which is entitled Bioregulatory Medicine, the Future of Health and Healing. And again, with a couple of quotes here before the chapter, the first one is from Paracelsus that says, the noblest foundation for medicine is love. It is love which teaches us the art of healing. Without love, true healing cannot be born. The second quote is from Sir William Osler. He says, The good physician treats the disease. The great physician treats the patient who has the disease. So some pretty good thoughts from those two gentlemen. And so I'm going to jump several paragraphs into the chapter here. So we can start talking about a concept called regulation capacity. So moving along here, the term regulation capacity is a measurement of a person's ability to react. It essentially refers to how many pushes one can take and still remain regulated or balanced. When the body is in balance, it is not as prone to chronic illness and it remains in a state of health or homeostasis. Regulation is about reaction. If you throw a ball at someone's face, they should react by either trying to catch the ball or dodging it so they don't get hit. If a light turns on, the iris constricts in the eye. If someone gets bitten by a lime-carrying tick, their body's auto-regulating systems, immune, digestive, and inflammatory, need to react against the bacteria. Reaction is regulation, regulation is adaptation, and the ability to regulate is the key to health. But if a person's barrel is too full, or there are too many logs blocking their flowing river, then regulation and reaction cannot happen. The body slows, cells degenerate, and we run out of energy. Too much energy has been expended trying to give back to homeostasis. And chronic disease occurs when a person has a lowered regulation capacity to such an extent that inherent healing forces are no longer able to react against disease-causing conditions with their normal and usual corrective efforts. Disease, quite simply, is a reduced regulation capacity. Regulation capacity is how well a person can adapt and react, and regulation logjams are what trigger or worsen chronic diseases. Bioregulatory medicine looks to remove the logjams and drain the barrel, all of which allow the resources for self-healing mechanisms to grow stronger, permitting self-healing to happen. The terms self-heal and regenerate both refer to self-repair forces inherent to humans. We know the body has the ability to regenerate as our tissues regenerate all the time. Think of a cut on your finger turning into a scab, then healing over completely. Over a lifespan, our body grows, develops, matures, and declines. Within this life cycle, every one of the body's cells and its organs has its own regeneration cycle. Some cells are programmed to die after 40 or so divisions. Every organ in the body has a regeneration cycle where old cells die and new cells are generated. Intestinal bacteria regenerate within several days, the intestinal wall within two weeks, and immune cells within four weeks. The liver possesses an extraordinary capacity to regenerate. As little as 25% of an original liver mass can regenerate back to its full size within six months. In general, the organs that do the most work encountering the outside world have the fastest regeneration rate. For example, the digestive lining and immune cells have a far shorter lifespan than our bone, heart, and brain cells. 
Healing, therefore, depends on a tissue's regeneration time. The default state of the body is one of ceaseless regeneration. In fact, every atom and molecule of the entire human body is replaced every 7 to 10 years without us even thinking about it. So I found those concepts pretty pretty darn interesting. The regulation capacity is basically synonymous or, or comparable to an allostatic load. And again, it's just like a, a, a bucket or a barrel that gets filled with water. So when you get hit with all these different stresses, whether it's a toxic stress, psych, uh, psychological stress, physical stress, so on and so forth, you keep adding these drops to the bucket. And your body, when it's healthy, is able to maintain and regulate and, and carry on as normal. But when you have so many drops in the bucket that you start to overflow, and of course, this is over the course of years and years and years, but when, when you breach your allostatic load or your, your uh, regulation capacity, that's where we start to see diseases and cancers and, and health conditions because now your body is overtaxed, it's depleted of its energy, and it's no longer able to respond accordingly as it should inherently or, or innately. And so pretty interesting concept that just to think about your environment, your lifestyle, and the different ways that you're adding drops to your bucket. And if you can minimize or mitigate that, then you're going to put your body and your internal system into a better state to be more resilient and respond and react accordingly. So I'm just going to skip a couple sections ahead here, because I think some of this stuff right here is interesting. The the treatment on the terrain. So I think in the last chapter, we talked about how bioregulatory medicine is all about treating the internal terrain or, or the soil, as it was called. And so just quickly diving into some of the treatment on the terrain, I'll just pick up on a spot here. Our health is more than just a medical construct. It is a reflection of how we choose to live. Humans cannot achieve optimal levels of health living in unhealthy environments while eating toxic foods or not getting enough rest or exercise. It is the responsibility of the physician to make the patient aware of these factors. It is then the patient's responsibility to create an environment that will be conducive to health and supportive of the body's internal milieu. There are many factors that can adversely impact the biological terrain, including dehydration, food allergies, improper diet and overeating, stress, heavy metals and environmental toxins, dental problems, vaccinations, medications, hidden infections, lack of exercise, electromagnetic field exposure or EMF exposure, lack of sunlight, structural imbalances, and injury. All of these factors can be prevented. Recall one of the core principles of bioregulatory medicine of utilizing the healing power of nature. Reverend Sebastian Kneipe of 1821-1897, a Bavarian priest and one of the forefathers of bioregulatory medicine, cured himself from tuberculosis using natural methods. At that time, the disease was usually fatal, but Kneipe, or Knipe learned about the ancient wisdom of using water as a means of therapy. He decided to immerse himself several times a week in the frigid Danube River. These brief exposures to cold water bolstered his immune system enough to send his disease into remission. Heat and cold, dryness and moisture, light and air, as well as proper nutrition are all 
part of the traditions of Hippocrates and are all important cornerstones of bioregulatory medicine today. And then we'll finish with the last section today entitled The Origins of Biomed or Bioregulatory Medicine. So again, this will be just a nice little insight into the history of how some of these alternative holistic practices came to be. So I I find this very interesting, and it just gives us a good perspective for where we are today now in, in terms of now that we have red light therapy with these thousands and thousands of pieces of research showing how efficacious and and beneficial it is, well, let's take a peek back hundreds and hundreds of years ago to see how this all kind of started. Diving back into the book here, bioregulatory medicine got its modern start in Germany during the early 1900s. In 1905, Dr. F. Bachmann united many like-minded physicians together in the Biological Medicine Society, which promoted biological regulatory medicine at conferences in Hamburg in 1912 and Dresden in 1924. At the turn of the 19th century, many doctors were still practicing homeopaths, and many of those homeopaths were also Jewish. In Germany and throughout Europe, World War I and World War II brought chaos and destroyed much of the bioregulatory medicine movement. During World War II, many Jewish scientists and homeopaths fled Germany for North and South America. It was not until the end of the National Socialist regime in the mid-1940s that a new renaissance in biological regulatory medicine started in Germany, Austria, and Switzerland, transitioning into what is today simply called bioregulatory medicine. There are more than 50 pioneering contributions to the herbal nutritional, homeopathic, energetic, and dental arms of bioregulatory medicine who were born before 1910. It would take a whole book to tell all of their tales of medical innovations and discoveries. St. Hildegard of Bingen in 1098 to 1179, for example, was an abbess, mystic, healer, visionary, and herbalist who believed God had given mankind herbs, spices, and foods to serve our bodies and keep us healthy. She authored two major medical treatises outlining nine categories of healing systems. Plants, elements, trees, stones, fish, birds, animals, reptiles, and metals. These papers were the foundation of natural medicine. Due to her outstanding work, which unfortunately no one was able to understand at the time, She was later made a saint in the Roman Catholic Church. Christoph Wilhelm Friedrich Hufeland was a German physician born in 1762, and Macrobiotic was his masterpiece on preventative medicine. First published in 1797, the book had eight official editions appearing during his lifetime and several translations. The organizing principle for understanding human life and health in Macrobiotic was the life force called Lebenskraft. This life force, according to Hufland, is manifested in organic beings as the ability to respond to external stimuli. He believed that this force could be weakened or destroyed, as well as strengthened through external influences. Lebenskraft is depleted through bodily exertion and increased with rest. Hufland believed that moral and physical health were intertwined and flowing from the same life force. The concept of life force has clearly been present for a very, very long time. 
Constantine Herring, one of the giants of homeopathy, was born on January 1, 1800 in Oschatz, Germany. He authored a number of books including The Guiding Symptoms of Our Materia Medica, which was based on 50 years of his research. Herring was involved with proving over 90 remedies and also founded the first homeopathic schools in the United States. Among his many contributions to the medical field were his observations of the healing process, coined Herring's Law of Cure, the way the body acts to heal itself. Herring formulated the law based on observations that the body seeks to externalize disease, noting that symptoms will surface as a part of the curative process, for example rashes, and a person's symptoms will appear and disappear in the reverse order of their appearance upon the body. Thus, a patient might re-experience symptoms during the healing process as the body heals from top to bottom and from more vital organs to less vital organs. Today, we call this a healing crisis, when people tend to feel a bit worse before they feel better. Just ask anyone who has ever done a two-week cleanse how they have felt on the third day. At the end of the 18th century and the early 19th century, we saw the advent of several distinct natural healing fields that are also considered limbs of the tree of bioregulatory medicine. These include osteopathic, chiropractic, holistic dentistry, and elements of psychological medicine. Carl Gustav Jung was a Swiss psychiatrist who emphasized the important role of the unconscious mind. Wilhelm Reich, an Austrian psychoanalyst, who discovered a form of energy called Oregon and asserted that this energy could be found within all living things and throughout the cosmos. One of Reich's books, Character Analysis, published in 1933, was groundbreaking. It, it suggested that a person's overall character, rather than only their symptoms, should be considered when diagnosing and analyzing neurosis. Canadian-born dentist Weston A. Price of 1870 to 1948, researched the relationship between nutrition, dental health, and physical health. Price developed the theory that systemic conditions including intestinal disorders and anemia were caused by infections in the mouth. In 1925, he published the book Dental Infections and Related Degenerative Diseases. Price also founded the National Dental Association and pioneered the holistic dentistry movement. It is worth noting that medicine and dentistry were one and the same until the mid-1800s. As medicine began to demand specialists, oral care was divorced from medicine's education systems and payment systems. Today, a dentist is not just a different kind of doctor, but is considered another profession entirely. Of course, our teeth don't know they're supposed to keep the problems confined to the mouth. Still, the connections proven between location of dental infection and location of organ dysfunctions, including breast cancer, cannot be ignored. Also, in the late 1800s, when allopathic medicine was looking at cancer treatment with a chemical warfare lens, those in the bioregulatory medicine field were discovering and using other highly effective yet non-toxic approaches. These biomed treatments had promising and prevailing results. Nobel Prize-winning German Otto Heinrich Warburg discovered that cancer cells had an altered metabolism and were low in oxygen due to a change in their cellular respiration. Warburg's discovery 
is the foundation of the metabolic hallmark of cancer that is gaining major modern traction in both drug development and dietary interventions today. Around the same time, Austrian Rudolf Joseph Lorenz Steiner, 1861-1925, and Indonesian-Dutch Ita Wegman, 1876-1943, co-founded a spiritual science called anthroposophical medicine, a belief that everything physical is infused with and manifests spirit, the earliest hint at epigenetics. Steiner and Wegman also developed a natural immunotherapy treatment using an extract of mistletoe. The remedy, called Iskador, has been an approved and effective cancer treatment in Germany and a number of other countries for decades and is currently undergoing clinical trials in the United States. Sadly, Americans who can afford to have it to date had to travel overseas to cancer clinics in countries such as Switzerland in order to have access to mistletoe therapy. Finally, an American entered the scene. William Bradley Coley, 1862-1936, a bone surgeon and pioneer of cancer immunotherapy, injected streptococcus bacteria into a terminal cancer patient, eliciting a high fever that subsequently dissolved an inoperable tumor. This was a medical miracle. The healing miracle of a fever which bioregulatory doctors had been using for centuries. Isn't it amazing that, even after Coley's medical miracle, Western medicine continued to suppress the power of fever with use of bioengineered immunotherapy substances? Also in the cancer realm was Joseph M. Issels, 1907-1998, a German physician who was dedicated to treating advanced and standard therapy-resistant cancers. Known for promoting an alternative cancer therapy regimen that he named the Issels treatment, his therapies included detoxification, nutritional support, supplementation with vitamins, minerals, and enzymes, chelation therapy, acupuncture, massage therapy, counseling, oxygen and ozone therapy, vaccines, and light therapy. Issel's methods were truly integrated, natural, polytherapy, bioregulatory approaches to treating cancer and chronic illness. What we see is that these nature cure treatments and concepts are all focused on the terrain. Once we go deeper into the terrain, the wonders of the body's bioregulating systems that create and sustain life become illuminated. Successful medicine, bioregulatory medicine, is focused on using treatments that encourage the harmonious functioning and homeostasis of all of these systems. So that ends the chapter there, and that's where we'll end today. I just wanted to cover those bits of the book. Again, those are the, that's the first couple of chapters, and there is eight chapters plus in this book. So if you found that interesting, I would highly recommend you go check it out. Again, it's called Bioregulatory Medicine. The link's in the show notes if you want a quick link to check it out on Amazon. But if you're into this type of information, kind of the history, the nuances, and then, as you can imagine, deeper into the book, they go into more specific topics. I'll read you some of the chapters here. Implementing a systems-based approach to bioregulation, regeneration, and healing. There's a chapter on detoxification, chapter on diet, a chapter on the nervous system, a chapter on the mouth of medicine, and then a chapter on introduction to major bioregulatory medicine diagnostic and treatment modalities. So you can see that it gets into more detailed and informational aspects of bioregulatory medicine. But again, even more than that, kind of the historical perspective of how allopathic medicine has become to be, I guess, basically follow the paper trail and follow people's motives. So that's why 
allopathic medicine and, and the pharmacological dominance that we see today came to rise and secondary to the Flexner's report and the powers that be suppressing alternative holistic treatment options in lieu of them getting more money, essentially. So if they can suppress these treatments that work and promote, again, pharmacological interventions where they're putting money in their pockets, then there's a lot of money to be made. And as we all know, a lot of those pharmacological treatments have side effects, which keep us sick, which keep us coming back to the pharmacy, and so on and so forth. So I just wanted to paint that picture, thanks to the authors, of the historical perspective of allopathy and the allopathic medicine, and then also that historical perspective of holistic, bioregulatory, alternative medicine, and just really how far back that goes. Again, from that that, that lady that worked at the Abbey back in like 1,000, I mean, think about that, over 1,000 years ago, we had people utilizing what was out in nature to heal the body. Just very, very cool, thought-provoking stuff, but I won't rant on too much longer here, but I hope you guys enjoyed kind of the change of pace, learning some new information, and again, in a roundabout way, having to do with red light therapy, just giving it some more background and and some more perspective. So um, hope you guys really enjoyed this. And again, thank you all for listening. For those that made it this far in the podcast, I appreciate every single one of you. And as I always ask, kind of a shameless plug for, if you haven't yet, just to make a quick 15 or 30 seconds to go leave a quick five-star review on either Apple Podcasts and or Spotify. Again, you don't have to leave a written testimonial. And in fact, you can on Spotify. But if you just go to the podcast, The Red Light Report, just click that five stars. And that way, this podcast can get a little more traction. And that way, this information, especially the information on red light therapy, can get out to the masses. Because if you or a friend or a family member have been impacted by red light therapy, you would want others and their loved ones to know about the information as well. So please do that for me if you could. But otherwise, guys, as always, enjoy the spring weather, get outside in the sunlight, get your grounding in, and as always, have an amazing week, and I'll see you next week. Don't forget to tune in because that's going to be a very, very special groundbreaking podcast with the information I'll reveal. But enjoy your week. I'll see you guys next week, and as always, light up your health. Thank you for listening to the Red Light Report. If you like what you heard today, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes and other podcast platforms to help spread the word so other people can learn about the many health, wellness, and longevity benefits of red light therapy. If you're looking for more educational content, check out our Instagram page at biolight.shop and our YouTube channel, Biolight. I'm Dr. Mike Belkowski, and I'll see you on the next episode.